Good morning. My name is Donald. I'm one of the pastors here at First Alliance, and what a privilege it is to stand before you again. And I am so grateful for God's mercies and His grace. He is the awesome God, you know. There is none beside Him. And He has smiled upon us. As we lift, as we continue to reflect upon our theme, the greatest music ever written, we come to the title piece, Lift Up Your Heads, O Ye Gates. The structure of this psalm, as you have heard read, makes it antiphoral. It is an antiphonal song. And what do I mean by that is that the people or a Levitical chorus would open up with uh, a reading or a saying. And the leader would ask the question, or he would present to them the message that we are to lift up our heads and we are to worship. And then there's a question that is asked. And I just want to read to you uh, verse 7 of the psalm from which we're going to be studying today. It says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Oh, excuse me, I... Uh, got a call coming in. I don't normally take calls, but uh, hello? Who is this King of Glory? Who is this King of Glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. He is the King of Glory. He is the King of Glory. And we praise him because of who he is. Although Handel's oratorio deals only with verses 7 through 10, we shall take a look at the entire psalm, and we want to do this because it really bears to what the rest of the song actually has to say to us. But I want you to just take a listen, if you will, to the words of the song that is rendered by uh, one particular group.
Amen. 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 There's a reason why we worship. There's a reason for our celebration. And that reason is one, the King of glory. And we are so grateful that we know him already. As we study this, I, I, I want you to know that uh, I did obtain the help uh, of some theologians, and one of them is Warren Wiersbe, a well-known theologian. And he says that this psalm presents a threefold privilege God has given to his people. Now, a privilege is something to be celebrated, and so we celebrate God's goodness in his absolute ownership of everything. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And so we get the sense that when uh, Handel uh, penned the songs, that he was filled with awe and wonder of our creator, as you and I should be. John 4, 24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Our acknowledgement of God's absolute ownership of everything in both word and deed is an act of worship. Worship that is acceptable to God not only recognizes his radiance of his worth with our thoughts, but also when those thoughts translate into the activities of our everyday lives. We are indeed saved by grace alone through faith without works. But genuine saving faith is faith that works. James challenges us to, who says that you say you have faith, show me your faith. And we will show our faith by the works that we do, by the way we live each and every day of our lives. If we truly believe that everything, including ourselves, belongs to the Lord, then we acknowledge that whatever we give has first been given to us. Last month we preached on Malachi 3, 16, 6 through 18, and we talked about this essential truth as it relates to stewardship. And no, we're not talking about giving today. We're talking about worship. As a matter of fact, when we preached on it last month, we were also talking about worship. It's a matter of worshiping with our gifts. Exodus 19, 5, God's word says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among the, all the people, for all the earth is mine. In Genesis 14, when Melchizedek blessed Abraham, in verse 19 of that chapter, he says, He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Abraham repeated these words in verse 22 when he addressed the king of Sodom, possessor of heaven and earth. In the Apostle Paul's writing, uh, his first letter to Timothy, and, and Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God 
who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. That sounds like worship. This song was sung in Herod's temple on Sundays. And some connect the psalm with the Lord's entrance into Jerusalem, and I do as well on what we call Palm Sunday. For years, the church has assigned this psalm to be read on Ascension Day, uh, the 40th day after Easter. And Christians see Christ as the Lord of glory. First of all, returning to heaven after his passion. When we read the passages uh, such as Ephesians 4, 8 and Colossians 2, 15, we won't read those today. We see that the Lord was returning to glory after he had conquered. This explains the repetition of lift up your heads in verses 7 through 9. We are worshipers who experience God's grace in redemption, and so we celebrate that. We celebrate God's grace. Uh, when we read this psalm, listen what it says in verses 3 through 6. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. These verses speak of what is required to come into the presence of the Lord. What this teaches is that worship is not merely a matter of what happens when we assemble in a place where we gather for corporate gatherings. It is not so much a matter of the raising of the hands or the clapping of the hands or the singing of the songs, even though those things are very, very important. Please do not misunderstand me. But the psalmist is talking about what happens when we are not together, when we are in the privacy of our own houses, when we are performing our jobs, when we are work dealing with our families in our homes, when we're walking by the wayside, when we're dealing with our neighbors, when we're in the marketplace. What happens? He that hath clean hands and a pure, pure heart. When you read verses 3 through 6, we should understand that there's a comparison, uh, a, a, a psalm that we should compare this to, and that's Psalm 15. Uh, it's also antiphonal. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander his, with his tongue, nor does evil do us evil to his neighbor, nor take up a reproach against a friend in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor take he, uh, does he take a bribe against the innocent. He, does, he who does these things will never be shaken. In other words, righteousness is that which stands. We see in these two a picture of an ideal worshiper 
of Jehovah. We can only come to God on his own terms. May I call your attention to another passage, 2 Samuel 6. This is the story where David, with very good intentions, sought to move the ark of God from Baal Judah. Here's the ark placed on a brand new cart. Very impressive thinking, isn't it? There was great celebration with fine musical instruments. The ark was being moved in verse 6 of 2 Samuel chapter 6 says this, but when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. But then it says in verse 9, so David was afraid of the Lord that day, you think? How is it that Uzzah, with such wonderful intentions, reached out and, to keep the ark from falling to the ground, and he died because of it? Why is that? It says he did it because it was because of his irreverence. Here's a question. What is it that was within Uzzah that made him think that his filthy hands were better than that ark falling onto the dirt? Do you get the picture? God is a holy God. The brand new cart that David had built did not impress God at all. You see, God had already prescribed how the ark was to be carried. It was only be to carry it. It was not on carts. It was to be carried on the shoulders of priests. And even the priests themselves were to use rods to pass through them so that they could hold them up. And they held the rods on their shoulders. And that's how the ark was to be carried. God has prescribed that's the way it was to be done. But they chose, they thought that, okay, well, I'm going to do it my way. Even the best religious intentions don't fly with God. Please understand that. All approach to God must be on his own terms. Now, just about now, somebody may be saying, well, who can measure up? Nobody's perfect. Yet, ladies and gentlemen, God does not change. Absolute perfection is what he requires. This is what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ not just good news, but the greatest news. This is what makes God's grace so amazing because Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, become short of God's holy standard. The perfection that God requires, he also provides in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. It is his victory that is celebrated in the psalm which we are studying. It is his victory that we are celebrating today, and we celebrate every time we come together. It is the Lord's victory that we celebrate. Not our own worthiness. Not our own goodness. This is why when people ask me how you're doing, I say better than I deserve. It is not just a catchy phrase, ladies and gentlemen. 
And the truth is, we all are doing better than we deserve. God's mercy is never deserved. His grace, by the very definition of the word, can never be earned. One cannot appreciate the mercy and grace of God unless he has a grasp of the infinite holiness and the perfect righteousness and the absolute justice of God. This is why we can sing amazing grace because we understand that we deserve to be in hellfire even today. Now, I know that some people who may be self-righteous may say, what do you mean? I'm good. No, you may be good, but you're not good enough. And so we celebrate. We are, we, we, we are victors in Christ, through Christ. So we celebrate Christ's glory and conquest because he has won the victory for us. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. The word glory in the Old Testament is from the Hebrew word kabod. In the ultimate sense, no subject is more important than God's glory. Let me say that again. No subject is more important than God's glory. Yet because of the many aspects of his glory, it is difficult to analyze. No simplistic answer can be given to the question as to how do we define his glory. And time does not afford us today the luxury of providing a full discussion on the subject of glory in this lesson. Nevertheless, since we are talking about the king of glory, it is necessary to talk about the term uh, and what it means within the context in which we are studying. As I said a moment ago, the, the common Hebrew word used in the Old Testament is kabod. It speaks of, among other things, majesty, splendor, beauty, righteousness, wealth, prosperity, rank, authority, reputation, honor, dignity. Dallas Willard said that dignity is a worth that has no substitute. The most common uh, New Testament word for glory is doxa. Man has a tendency to seek eminence, but God does not. God does not try to be God. He is God. The Bible doesn't even attempt to prove the existence of God. It simply declares, in the beginning, God. Likewise, he does not try to obtain glory. His glory and worth are intrinsic. Psalms 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmaments show his handiwork. I, I, I want you to come with me just for a very brief time. Romans chapter 1. And bear with me because somebody bothered to call me. I didn't set my phone, timer on my phone to see how, how long I'm up here. So uh, I don't know how long I've been up here. And uh, um, I don't know how long I'm going to be up here. But uh, I, I, I'm sure we'll be out here in time for dinner, church. Uh,
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I have on good authority that people who claim that they don't believe in God are simply, most of them, are simply being dishonest. The problem is that, not that they don't believe in God, the problem is that they don't want God. That is the problem. And I have it on good authority. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even when they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Uh, gave thanks, became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So when somebody says to you, I don't believe that God exists, do not argue with them. Because I have a strong suspicion that that is not the real thing. It's simply a matter of dishonesty. We are talking about God's glory. Our worth comes from God. Psalms 8, 5 through 9 says, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things on his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and, and heaven and the fish of the seas, whatever passes through the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The dignity of Israel was based upon the presence of God as represented by the Ark of the Covenant. And so when the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines, it was around that time that the daughter of Eli, the priest, was giving birth. And as she was giving birth, she died in childbirth. As she was, but before she died, she gave the child a name, Ichabod. Ichabod. She said, call the boy, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband, they were not honoring God. By virtue of being the son, Jesus Christ is glorified. Christ shares the glory of God, according to Hebrews 1.3, not merely as a reflection, but as the manifestation or the radiance of that glory. Through him, the knowledge of God's glory, his essential being is made available to mankind, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Before the world was created, Christ shared the glory with the Father. And we find that in John 1, 1 and in John 17, 5. The many miracles that Christ performed gave the world glimpses of his glory while on earth. The one instance where his intrinsic glory was manifested prior to his crucifixion was on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus has said that there are those among you who will not see death until they've seen the glory of the Lord. 
But in the transfiguration, and starting at Luke 9, 27, it says, um, uh, and I'll read that again, but I truly say, say to you truthfully that there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men were standing with him. So he is the king of glory. He is the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. The government business of ancient cities was conducted at the city gates. The psalmist is calling upon the city of Jerusalem to give a hearty welcome to the Lord, but why the twofold address to the gates? At the beginning of his earthly ministry, may I say, he fought the battle with Satan in the wilderness and he won. But Jesus invited his antagonizers to prove that he had committed even one sin. On Palm Sunday, Jesus made a triumphant entry into the city. The first Adam lost his battle in the Garden of Eden. And at the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus fought another battle. This time it was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He won that battle. He was alone both times in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was only after he declared to the Father, not my will, but yours be done, that an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. But in that battle, he was alone. He was alone as he hanged on the cross of Calvary. He was alone when he cried out, it is finished. He has fought the battle and won for you and me. Jesus Christ ultimately took on flesh in order to live as the ideal worshiper of God. And we see that in Philippians chapter 2, where it says, uh, verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And on the road to Emmaus, Jesus asked the rhetorical question, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? In his death, he defeated sin, and in his resurrection, he defeated death. And we celebrate his victory because in him we live. Just before Christ's departure, to return to his father in heaven in Matthew 8, 28, 18. It says, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The Lord of hosts. Again, why this twofold declaration? I must confess my limited knowledge. 
I do not claim to have all of the answers, but please remember that God does not waste words. There's another battle that's yet to come. Jesus is coming back. The first time he came as a baby, meek and mild. And in his life on earth, he won the victory over sin and death for you and me to the glory of God the Father. Death has now lost its sting. It no longer has dominion over him, and it no longer has dominion over us. The grave has lost its victory. You and I will rise again because he conquered death. And so heaven opened wide its gates to receive Christ. Christ now reigns victoriously. His next coming is described in Revelation 19, picking up at verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he sat on it. Who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, and may I just stop there, ladies and gentlemen, that includes not only the angels, but that includes you and me. Are you with me? And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Zechariah 14.9 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name, the only one. He is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, that the word host is found some 486 times in the Bible. It appears first in, the, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, which says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. In this usage, it refers to the heavens and the earth and everything in creation. It also speaks of labor, military service, war. It speaks of an army. In Genesis 22, 21, it says, Now it came about at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abram and saying, God is with you in all that you do. So the title host or the Lord of hosts is found in Scripture more than 300 times. In addition to Psalm 24, there are two among uh, the most remembered places where we find the word host. Joshua 5, 14, and Isaiah 6, 3, and 5. Many of you recall these encounters. In Joshua 5, it says, Now it came uh, that about when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him, and his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us? or for our adversaries? And he said, no. Didn't sound like a yes or no question to me. But you know, Jesus doesn't answer on our terms, does he? God does not answer on our terms. Are you for us or for our adversary? And he said, no, rather indeed I now come as captain of the host of the Lord. 
And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. You know, the first thing that is in order is worship. Worship. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, you, uh, many of you are familiar with this passage also. In the year that King Uzziah death, uh, death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The, you get that? The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the, of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And these creatures who have never committed sin covered their feet and they covered their faces before one who is altogether infinitely holy. What about you and me? Both of those encounters are appearances of Christ in his pre-incarnate state. Both encounters reveal the infinite holiness of God. Both encounters reveal the manner in which you and I must approach a holy God. When Christ returns, he will put down all earthly rule. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says, So that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. People can claim that they don't know God today. People can claim that they don't believe in God today. But there's going to come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of Almighty, he is the Lord mighty in battle. He is the king of glory. And we praise him.